Hello and welcome to the British Society of Gastroenterology Trainees podcast. My name is James Kennedy and I'm a gastroenterology trainee in the Oxford Deanery. Today's guest is Dr Alistair McKinley, consultant gastroenterologist at the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and current president of the BSG. He graduated in medicine from Edinburgh University and subsequently trained in Edinburgh, Birmingham, Glasgow and Aberdeen. His clinical interest lies in nutrition, particularly treating patients with intestinal failure and eating disorders. Welcome to the podcast, Alistair. Um, Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, First of all, let's talk a bit about your path into gastroenterology. So tell me a bit about why you chose it as a specialty. Well, I was talking at the the taster weekend and really, as I tried to point out, I don't think it, I chose it as a specialty. I think in a funny kind of way, it chose me. It was a sort of accident, but a very happy one. So originally when I was at medical school, I was dead set on becoming an infectious diseases specialist. And I did an honors in microbiology and I did um, at least two SHO jobs at the time in infectious diseases. So I was very interested in it. And then I was advised that I'd probably done enough um, at that sort of level in infectious diseases, and it would be wise to get a second specialty. Well, I didn't fancy chess because they had just put in a moratorium on recruiting anybody as senior registrar in chess that was going to last for four years because they'd over-recruited. And I remembered back to um, a time when I worked for Professor Neil Finlayson in Edinburgh, who was Scotland's first hepatologist. And Neil, in his own quiet way, was um, quite a charismatic person. He taught me an awful lot about medicine. And I can remember sitting with in a clinical sort of pathological conference looking at various bits of liver tissue. And Neil was writing a book at the time and he went into a kind of extended soliloquy about how the liver was the center of the body and all the other organs relied on the liver for their atmosphere to, to live and work in. And at the end of it, he said, well, you know, I, I, I'm sorry about that. I suspect every specialist feels that way about his specialty. And I remember sitting there and thinking, no, they don't. And so when I needed to do something different, I went into gastroenterology. And then it sort of took over. And I ended up staying in gastroenterology. And anyway, at that time, the most interesting infection in the world was Helicobacter pylori. And that was where I sort of cut my teeth with research and so on. So my trip into gastroenterology was accidental. My trip into nutrition, um, I suppose, came out of love because I ended up marrying a dietitian. And um, Janice, um, first of all, persuaded me that nutrition was an interesting area to be in. And secondly, she was the one who prompted me to, to place the first peg tube in Aberdeen, which I thought was going to be a one-off. And now something like three and a half thousand procedures later, I'm still doing them. And uh, I just gradually moved into nutrition as a subspecialty as a result of that. And then a a sort of adversity led to an opening for me because at the time, probably Britain's one of Britain's foremost nutritional experts was the late Chris Pennington in Dundee. Chris was a was a wonderful champion for nutrition. Um, and just after I'd become interested in nutrition and joined Baypen and things like that, Chris suddenly became ill um, and he developed a, a really very rapidly fatal brain tumor. So his really untimely death, in a sense, left the field open. And um, that allowed me to, 
to move forward in nutrition. Although I, I really um, would have loved to have worked with, with um, Chris longer because he was really a very, very um, far-thinking mentor figure in Scottish nutrition. So that's how I got here, all by accident, but not a single regret on the way. Excellent. And, and tell us a bit more about your um, work with here back to Pyloro. So um, did you go down the same route as, as Barry Marshall? Were you, were you drinking? I met Barry Marshall very early on, actually, because um, it was about 1986. And I'd moved to Glasgow and we were terribly excited because we'd found that Helicobacter um, was present in 50% of the patients with rheumatoid arthritis that we looked at. And we were just beginning to assemble some sort of ideas about maybe Helicobacter was associated with rheumatoid when the first reports came out that it was present in about 50% of people over the age of 50, which just perfectly matched our group of patients. Um, so my, I think my role in Helicobacter was really very minor compared to other people. I was quite interested in the microbiology and the fact that Helicobacter produces toxins uh, and thinking about its pathogenesis. Um, I suppose one of the most important things that came out of my interest in Helicobacter was that was the first time I met Imad El-Omar, who is the current editor of GUT, and that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. And um, Imad was a colleague for nearly 20 years in Aberdeen till he moved to Australia. So it's like all of these things, you don't quite know where it's all going to go in the end. But um, Helicobacter at that time, right into the 1990s, um, I suppose right up to about the millennium, was in, was an incredibly fruitful area. There's a lot of research going on. And one of the most important things about it was that the, the actual idea for Helicobacter, that the original finding came out of a tiny registrar research grant, which Barry Marshall took up. Um, and the consequences of that discovery, you know, are still reverberating today. Um, when I went into gastroenterology, you know, there was a there was a disease which was recurrent, it caused enormous problems for patients, great discomfort. Um, it quite often killed them because of GI bleeding. Um, it could be put into remission, but could never be cured. Um, it sounds very like Crohn's disease, but it wasn't, it was duodenal ulcer. And the fact that helicobacter eradication eliminated duodenal ulceration effectively um, was was the most amazing uh, period of time to live through. So much so now that, you know, when I started doing endoscopy, each list would be about seven duodenal ulcers in various stages of treatment or recurrence. And of course, nowadays, if you find a, a sort of virgin duodenal ulcer that nobody suspected, um, you more or less call David Attenborough because they're so rare. Um, you know, most people have been on NSAIDs or other things. So it was a fantastic time to live through. Um, and that's another point. You sort of have to take advantage of what's around at the time. So that would be one of my big messages to trainees. You know, at, at the moment, we're in the middle of, of a quite um, unprecedented period of time in medicine. I have never lived through anything like this, and I've been qualified for 38 years. I've never seen anything like COVID. I've lived through a couple of um, flu pandemics, but nothing that compares to this. And it's you know, an enormous stress for everybody working in medicine, whether you're a, a consultant or a trainee. 
there are going to be very strange things that come out of this pandemic. There are going to be new things that people haven't seen before, longer-term consequences that we weren't aware of. And um, what I'd be saying to trainees is look out for them and take advantage of, of anything new that you find when it comes along. Keep an inquiring mind. And again, the other thing I would say is that it's very, very disturbing for trainees at the moment to see their training disrupted Everybody wants to get on and complete their training. And we're completely sympathetic, you know, on the BSG and trying to do our best to protect training. But nobody can predict what this is, what this virus is going to do next. What you've got to realize is that you will, you will never be as needed as you're going to be. You know, when this pandemic dies down, there's going to be a huge um, backlog of GI disease to sort out. We're going to need everybody um, who's qualified and who's trained, and we cannot afford to lose anybody. So do not worry about your long-term prospects. You are going to be more useful and more needed than you could possibly ever imagine. It just may take a little longer to get there. That's really good to hear, and it's quite hard to appreciate that you're living through history when, when you're in it, but I guess... Yeah, I think, I mean, I said that in a blog recently, you know, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, the past is a bit like a movie that we've seen before, you know, you, you kind of know how it's going to end. Um, the future is scary, but there's always the possibility that you can change the future. The really scary thing to live through is the present, and particularly when you're in uncharted territories. And nobody has been in this situation before. We've never been up against this. Um, I'm, I'm very optimistic it will end. You know, if you think back to, to 1919 and the Spanish flu pandemic, you know, even without the science that you remember, nobody had even seen a virus at that stage, even without all of that technology and the ability to create vaccines, that pandemic burnt itself out in the end. It took it about two and a half years. But we're, if it hadn't burnt itself out, we'd still be knee deep in people with Spanish flu. Um, so even if we didn't have any of the technology, COVID would burn out. But I've, I think once the vaccination process gets underway, we will um, definitely see a reduction. I think what we've got to be very careful about is not being complacent. And the thing that worries me is delaying the second dose of the COVID vaccine may mean that we're not completely protected and we don't know how long the immunity will last. And so I think we've got to be very careful that we don't watch this pandemic die down and then get very complacent and think, well, that's it, it will never come back. We need to be on our guard and we need to be telling government to clamp down immediately if it ever rears its head again. I think it's uh, it's fair to say you've had quite a, a baptism of fire starting your tenure as BSG president amid this pandemic. Um, do you want to talk to us a bit about the highs and lows of the role so far? Yeah, I think you're going to get a prize for understatement, James. I kind of, um, well, you know, I, I became president-elect um, three years ago, effectively, nearly three years ago now. And certainly it wasn't on my kind of agenda or plan to be living right the way through the middle of a pandemic. Um, the high for me has been the BSG full stop. Um, I think we were in a very lucky, we were lucky because... Catherine Edwards had come in and had behind the scenes completely revolutionized the BSG. She will go down as one of the great reforming presidents of the BSG. 
So it's very difficult describing to you what the BSG was like before Catherine arrived. But after Catherine, you know, financially, we're in a much more controlled position. The governance um, is in a completely different place. Um, and so we were actually prepared, although we hadn't been planning on it, when the pandemic came along. Um, the other thing was that we, we had difficulty with our website. And again, we'd Mark Hacker had come in as our CEO and largely sorted all of that so that when the pandemic struck, we could actually get the guidance out there. We could respond very rapidly. And that has been a, a complete godsend. So I'm the high point for me has been part of being part of the BSG and, and being part of a, an organization that really has stepped up to the plate. The low points, um, the effect on training is a huge low point for me. I, Looking at what's happened, I, I can't actually see a way that we could have prevented the impact on training because I think when the pandemic really struck, it was all hands to the pumps. And so it was inevitable that trainees would be diverted away. But of course, we rely so much on um practical hands-on experience it really really has been bad for our trainees um, other low points just seeing how worried and stressed everybody has been it's been a very unpleasant year 2020 um, not one to look back on as being a bundle of fun and it's seen a lot of people coping extremely well under very stressful situations but nevertheless having their lives disrupted and times when you should be having fun you know particularly trainees with young families who then have had all the worries about homeschooling and so on. Um, a very, very low point happened to me just at the weekend with the death of um, Donald O'Donoghue, the registrar of the RCP. Donald had been, um, I hadn't known Donald at all before I became president-elect, but he'd been part of the Joint Committee for Gastroenterology, very loyal. He'd been the Medical Specialties Board Chair, and he'd really led the RCP's response to COVID. And uh, he he was a wonderful man to meet, always seemed very, you know, fit and well. And it was a big shock to learn he'd got COVID just before Christmas, and an even bigger shock to learn that he'd gone into intensive care. But I think his death last weekend um, really, really has been a huge blow to a lot of people not least of all because I'm 62 and it just reminds you that um, COVID is rather ageist and definitely likes people who are into their 60s and older. So that, that's been the really low point for me. But we will we'll come through this. Um, we will come out the other side and we will just keep adapting and changing. Um, I can tell you one scoop, which is even slightly ahead of the exec, which is that unfortunately um, Glasgow, which is where we were going to have the annual conference in May, the Scottish government has extended its contract for that as a as a sort of Nightingale type hospital and vaccination centre, and they've extended it to July. So we will need to make new arrangements for our annual conference, but it's too early to say what's going to happen yet. But um, we will have. Um, a quality production we will have something that very much focuses around training as well thinking particularly of our trainees and we will just do what we've done which is we will adapt to each change that comes along and i think keep our core values in place as well which is about being safe 
um, being high quality and looking after the membership, whether they be consultants, trainees, nurses, AHPs, that's going to be the priority. And that's exactly as you said, it's the the need to be nimble um, in this ever-changing situation, whether it's with guidelines, education, that's something that you know, the BSG has really risen to the challenge of. And trainees have, you know, when you look at the content that trainees have produced and put on the website and so on, it's very impressive. And um, that's why I'm always very optimistic about our specialty. We, we continue to recruit really, really high quality people. I think the big danger is that when you get something as bad as COVID and, and everybody's stressed and everybody's working very, very hard and you know, it's a bit unremitting. I don't know what you find, but I find the weekends are pretty much like the week, which is pretty much like the week before. There isn't sort of light and shade. Then I think people sometimes don't always appreciate how wanted and how needed and how appreciated they are. And if I could, that's probably the one single message I'd want to get out to the trainees. We, we really, really value you. Um, unfortunately, you're dealing with a group of people who are also humans, so I, I don't have all the answers to the things which are happening at the moment, but we will continue fighting for you, and we really value and appreciate you. Oh, that's, that, that's a really great message. Tell us a bit more about, about yourself now. So what would you say is your, your proudest achievement to date? Well, I was thinking about that one. I think actually, and it sounds a bit corny, but my my professionally, my proudest achievement to date is becoming president of the BSG because I, I really hadn't expected that and um, I still can't quite believe how lucky I, I've been to be president. Um, I, was, I was saying somebody said to me, a bit like you said earlier on, this must be terrible, you know, being president in the COVID years and all the rest of it. Um, and I think... You know, the opposite, actually. It's been an enormous honour and it continues to be an honour and um, something that I, I I really look forward to my work with the BSG each, each day I get up. So that, I think, has been the biggest thing for me. Other things, well, I think we've built a very good nutrition service in Aberdeen. Um, that's been a, you know, a lifetime work, actually. And we started just, you know, I started just doing peg tubes and then developed an interest in enteral nutrition and then through the Scottish Managed Clinical Network and Home Parental Nutrition, I became involved in home parental nutrition and intravenous feeding. And then a completely chance encounter um, brought me into contact with our eating disorder service in Aberdeen. So, uh, and that led in turn to um, a very uh, special friendship with my colleague, Jane Morris, who's a psychiatrist, now retired, but that led to writing a book on eating disorders. So I think it's putting together a comprehensive nutritional service that is the other big, um, if you like, thing I'm proud of in my life. What do you think, so within nutrition now, what do you think is the most exciting or important thing that's happened over the past 20 years? Well, I was really thinking about that one, James. Um, uh, I think there were a couple of things. I think the first was... Uh, just as I became a consultant in 1992, the King's Fund published on undernutrition, malnutrition in the UK. And the, the United, Britain was the first country really to wake up to the fact that malnutrition is illness associated. So, you know, up to a third of people coming into hospital are either at risk or, or already have features of undernutrition. 
and they need to be um, spotted, screened for, and then treated so that they don't get worse during the hospital stay. And the development of the MUS screening tool and all of the work around undernutrition and recognition, I think that's been a huge achievement for British nutrition. Not maybe scientifically quite as exciting as, as some other things, but in terms of the numbers of patients and the difference it can make to their outcomes, I think it's been huge. And I think we need to go back to pushing that at government again once the COVID epidemic begins to settle down because the cost of undernutrition is huge. I think the next thing I would probably single out would be um, the development of, you know, of reliable bariatric surgery and the understanding that this is a metabolic operation rather than just an obesity operation. So, that, you know, type 2 diabetes really does turn off when you do this strange thing to the gut. And I think that's an area where there'll be continued um, value research, you know, in terms of understanding the mechanisms of that. Um, and then I think the whole development of ways of feeding and supporting people um, has been a huge thing over the past 20 years. It's perhaps not been quite as exciting. You know, we haven't had the drugs and the, you know, the major achievements like, you know, H hepatitis C and the fact that, you know, we can now, in, in the vast majority of people, cure hep C. That's been an enormous, fantastic achievement in hepatology and, of course, the new drugs in inflammatory bowel disease but in terms of being able to do something for large numbers of people in specialties outside gastroenterology i think nutrition has been has had a really major effect in british medicine over the past 20 years thank you very much and how about at home what what are your loves outside of medicine right well family um uh, i I met Janice when I was in Glasgow and um, we got married in 1991 and we're still very much together and we have two kids. Um, the other things that really, I suppose at the moment, music has always been a really big thing for me. And then in about, I don't know, 2014 or something like that, you know, I'd, I never had sung comfortably in public, even at church I would almost sort of mime to the music and I decided I would get singing lessons and that's been a huge eye-opener you know learning to sing and um, singers talk about their voices their instrument which sounds a bit pretentious but you know you wouldn't pick up a violin and expect to play it in one lesson and so learning over a number of years to sing and to join choirs and to actually be able to express myself in song that has been a fantastic thing I suppose it shows you you can if you put your mind to it you can do practically anything whatever whatever your age and and background is whether other people find that such a pleasant hobby I don't know I think some of my colleagues would regard my singing as being almost like a uh, an illegal weapon you know it's not always received well um, and the other big thing I do is photography um, and that's that's great although uh this year has not been a good year for photography because I've not really been able to get away very much, particularly in the northeast of Scotland. We've This is our sort of third or fourth lockdown we've had here. So not been the greatest year for photographs, but it nevertheless is something I really enjoy doing. Brilliant. And, uh, and to leave off now, you've already given us a, a couple of top tips for trainees, such as looking out for opportunities in challenging times and reminding everyone that they're valued. Um, is there one piece of advice you'd give for either a, um, 
an incoming gastroenterology trainee, someone aspiring within the specialty? Um, I think what I would say is um, no matter how ambitious you are and how dedicated to becoming a consultant and making your way up the tree, leave a bit of time for yourself um, and leave a bit of time for family. And just remember that as COVID has taught so many people, this, this isn't a rehearsal. This, this is the performance. You, you only get one go at it. And it's really important to have other bits outside medicine that, that you can shelter from. And that was a very important tip when I became a consultant because um, I, a colleague, I was a geriatrician I worked with, um, he said, uh, what hobbies do you have outside medicine? I just looked at him aghast and said, well, I don't think I've really got time for hobbies. And he said, do you play a musical instrument? And I said, well, I did used to play the violin, but I haven't picked it up for 10 years. And he said, you need a hobby. You need something else. Join my orchestra. And so I joined his orchestra, and that was a, a real godsend. And I can't explain how important for your mental health it is to have something at least once a week that you do that's nothing to do with medicine and which just gives you pleasure. And that would be my tip. There is life outside medicine. Alistair, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. And again, um, to all our trainees just hang in there and we're really really proud this comes up at the executive time after time and the trustees of the bsg we're so proud of of the way our members have responded to covid and we're particularly proud of the way that our trainees have risen to the challenge and have done things not that they're not necessarily comfortable with without complaining and i think one of the things about one of it's a strange compliment but the reason that gastroenterologists are deployed elsewhere is that we still remain very very good at doing the general stuff as well as our specialty so if everybody in the trainee section un understands how proud we are of them that would be another great achievement of this podcast that's really great to hear and thank you again for all your hard work and you're hard welcome work. it's a pleasure <laughs>